morning and welcome to church on a seriously dreary morning and let's face it a dangerous morning in many ways for some. Good morning to you who are watching online safely at home and for some of you that was a good decision looking at the roads this morning. We're going to start our service this morning by singing a wonderful hymn. Before that I'm going to read out this verse that encourages us from Psalm 105 to give thanks to the Lord, to call on his name, to make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let's stand and do that together. Just to say we 
I've got written here, don't forget to welcome people in the courtyard, but no one in the courtyard today. So welcome again, my name's Deborah and I'm on the staff here at uh, St Matthews, particularly welcome to you if you've never been here before and if I don't know you, uh, please come up and say hello to me at the end. There's still people I'm meeting after a year that I haven't met, even though they've been going here for 30 years. So please, if you haven't spoken to me, please come up and speak to me. I started today with Psalm 105, which encourages us to give thanks to the Lord and tell of his wonderful, mighty acts, which is a great way to start our time together. But I could have well started at this time of year with that thing, that verse from Romans that says, mourn when others are mourning and weep when others are weeping. Because there's a lot about for us to weep about today as we gather together. There's war, there's flood, there's disease, there's death. Both the death due to those things, but the death of people that we love, people that have passed to be with the Lord in the last week. But we're also told in Peter to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So when we gather together, we have those anxieties and those concerns, but he says, cast them all onto me because I care. And we'll be praying for these things later in the service. That hymn said, forever prayer. And that's what we want to be part of, the forever prayer that's going on at all times in the earth. And we'll be hearing words of hope from the gospel because that's our only ultimate sense of hope. And we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper together as brothers and sisters that can gather together and know that's what Jesus has done for us. That's where our hope is. So I encourage you now to stand and to bring your concerns and anxieties to Jesus. And we're going to say together the words of the Apostles' Creed and say, for all that, this is what we believe. So let's stand. What is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. A few things to share with you today. Uh, first of all, we always like you to connect. QR code, call the office, talk personally to one of us. That's the short version. The long version is last week or a couple of weeks ago, I talked about people, particularly you people at home who are there because you're in self-isolation to reach out. But today, I really want to ask people to connect. If you're finding the anxieties of the world situation is impacting you in a way that's not helpful, please reach out to one of us and we'll pray with you and for you because it's overwhelming. And what they call compassion fatigue is a real thing. So don't be experiencing all these things and having nowhere to go with them. Let, let someone around you help you or let us help you, please. 
Uh, harbour baptisms are coming back. It's a wonderful, exciting time. In a few weeks, we're hoping the rain will have stopped and that we'll be able to have our actual baptism service. Otherwise, maybe we can just stand out in the corso and that would work out. But baptism's a wonderful public symbol of our faith. And uh, we're cleansed and we're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And it's a big step. So if any of you here haven't been baptised and would like to be, please let us know. Uh, possibly... If there's someone here that's not baptised and they would like to be baptised, they might think that the harbour pool sounds like a bridge too far. So still see us anyway, because you don't have to be baptised in the harbour pool. So don't let that be something that stops you thinking about it. And please consider coming to support those that are being baptised. There'll be young people there, and what an amazing blessing it is when young people see people that have been going there for years and years and years. And there's someone here today who's celebrating a birthday who's like that, and that's Charles. So at morning tea this morning, we'll be celebrating 96 wonderful years. And for those of you, God bless you, Charles. So that's something I aspire to, 96 wonderful years. So yeah, that'll be wonderful. Um, and, a, and then a very sad occasion today. I'm sure most of you have heard that uh, Val Wood passed to be with the Lord on Tuesday, which is a wonderful, wonderful blessing for her and a terrible, terrible sadness and grief for those that miss her. So her funeral will be on Tuesday afternoon at 1.30 and everyone's warmly invited to attend with a morning tea to follow. And um, I don't know, there, John, our deepest prayers and condolences and love for you. We loved Val. We're going to join together in a hymn now uh, as the musicians come up. This starts on Jordan's bank, the Baptist cry. And today our reading focuses on John the Baptist. It's a wonderful hymn, this, and it prepares us for the message and, and the content of John's message, which he announced. He announced the Lord had come, but his witness cost him dearly. And we're going to hear a bit about that. But it is a message that worth hearing and repeating. So let's stand and this will be our collection hymn. On Jordan's back the Baptist cried announces that the Lord is nigh. Come, Caleb, hearken, for he brings glad tidings from the King of Kings. Then cleanse me every breast from sin, make straight the way for God within. Prepare within Such a mighty guest may come. For you are our salvation, Lord, our refuge and our great reward. Without your grace we waste away like flowers that wither and Stretch out your hand. 
today is from Mark chapter 6 verses 1 to 29 and it's on page 1007 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came he began to preach in the synagogue and many heard him and were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't he the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter house, a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, The king said to, Can you hear me? The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The the head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with that request. I want you to give me right now the head of, of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. The man went out, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing. You guys are the best. I want to say that you you'll have the um, the best seats in heaven. Um, so make sure you reserve a spot for me. Welcome to you guys who are watching online, <laughs> nice and dry. Um, we will have the best seats in heaven. So hope you enjoy yours right now. I'm going to um, pray. Be great to have have your Bibles open at one page one thousand and seven. I think it is Mark chapter six. In any case, let's pray and we'll get down to work. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We are conscious of it in so many ways. Not the least of which is you speak through your scriptures. So as we give our attention to them this morning, speak to us through them in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, it's easy to make people dislike you. And it can be quite quick as well. A Business Insider magazine, one of my personal favourites, recently reported on 14 things people do that make them instantly unlikable. Uh, For example, even something as benign as inserting a smiley face emoji in an email can leave a less than favourable impression, as does offering a kind of limp handshake, as does not smiling. Fair enough. Getting too nervous or acting too nice also make you quickly unlikable, Whereas I thought actually they might be disarming, but apparently everybody hates a humble bragger. What you do online counts, so sharing too many photos on social media is a definite no-no if you want to be popular. And specifically, uh, friends don't like it when you share too many photos of your family, and family don't like it when you share too many photos of friends. According to a 2012 Californian study, Posting a profile photo too close up at, say, 50 centimetres makes you far less trustworthy, attractive and competent than if you're photographed a little further away. Disclosing something too personal too early on in a relationship doesn't work, but neither does asking somebody questions without talking about yourself at all, if you want to be liked. 
Now, I would admit to doing that last thing, but it sounds a bit too much like humble bragging, so I won't. <laughs> Apparently, even having a hard-to-pronounce surname <laughs> can really put people off. <laughs> so sorry. I'll tell you one thing that will almost certainly get you unliked, and that is being a prophet. Saying uncomfortable but necessary things on behalf of God is a surefire, fast track to rejection. And we see that in three ways in today's passage. Jesus offends. The disciples are rejected. John the Baptist is beheaded. And yet within these three related incidents, there are some hidden and powerful reasons to hope and to persevere. So worth a close listen today to the problem of prophets. Now, if you've joined us for the first time, we're about midway through our course in Mark's Gospel this term. Uh, we picked it up in chapter 4 where we left off last year. We will finish at Easter time in chapter 8, the midway point in the book. But today we're in chapter 6. I really do hope you have that open in front of you. And the prophets are having problems. Jesus, the disciples who are his representatives, and John the Baptist, the one who paved the way for the ministry of Jesus. So firstly today, Jesus offends. He is offensive. And it's a special kind of offense, the kind that is reserved for hometown heroes who become hometown zeros. Uh, have a look. Uh, verse 1, Jesus is back in his hometown, that's Nazareth, with his disciples. Verse 2, he teaches in the synagogue. Mark tells us in verse 2 that many who heard him were amazed, which is the same reaction we've seen earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 1. You remember, um, or you might remember in chapter 1, the amazement of the gathered crowd who heard Jesus bred further interest in Jesus to the point where there was standing room only, or not even. He had to withdraw to the countryside or to preach from boats. But what's different here is that within the space of two verses, the amazement of his home crowd turns to offence. And if you look carefully, they are not only offended by his teaching, they take offence at him personally conversation goes something like this in verses three and four oi where do you get this wisdom where did he get this power which is a great question to ask if you're asking it open-mindedly and we've been doing just that as we've traced through mark's gospel week by week and it's clear to us the answer is well he gets the power he gets the wisdom from god I mean, Jesus quiets the basic elements of creation, the wind and the waves, with the power of God. He exorcises demons by the power of God. And even the demons recognize his divinity, saying things like, What do you want, Jesus, son of the most high God? But you sense that these folks today, whom Jesus had grown up alongside, weren't asking it quite as open-mindedly. Isn't he the carpenter, they say? It's kind of like, isn't that Terry's lad? Jono, didn't he fix the drains that time for us? Uh, we played footy with his brothers, Hamo and Danny. Hey, Sharon, don't you do Pilates with his sister, Cindy? You know, they start amazed, but they take offense. We know you, Jesus. We grew up alongside you. You are one of us. You are not one better than us. So don't come back here with highfalutin talk about the kingdom of God and repent and believe and all that. And so Jesus' reply in verse 5 is both telling and it has import to us. Read along with me. A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. And the text tells us that he could do few miracles there, not because his miracle working couldn't get 5G in that remote part, 
but because their faithlessness did not provide a conducive environment for miracles. Now, I want you to notice this means that their hard-heartedness, their kind of contempt because of their familiarity with him, we know you, Jesus, actually prevents them from seeing further evidence of his divinity, from understanding more, more fully his central position in the kingdom of God. And the reason why I say this has import to people like you and me is that those of us who have been in church for a long time can experience a familiarity with Jesus that it prevents us from hearing him afresh. We can be tempted or contempted to think, I know every story. I've heard every parable. I have heeded every instruction. And that, friend, stops us from seeing and it stops us from hearing new things that we haven't seen or heard before. It dulls us to new things God wants to teach us or perhaps to old things we need reminding of. Well, this episode in chapter 6 ends with Jesus taking his turn to be amazed. You can see that in verse 6. But this time, it's at their lack of faith the lack of faith amongst his relatives and his neighbours. Well, friends, let that not be true of us. Secondly, today, we see the disciples' rejection, or at least we hear of it in anticipation, if not seeing it necessarily playing out that way. The disciples are rejected, and once again, it's when they share their message that calls for repentance. They experience the same problem as prophets. You speak and you get not liked. Now look carefully at verse 6, which is kind of cut in two by a heading in our Bibles. But um, see how it reads as a single verse. Verse 6, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. In the original language, it reads more like this. And he was amazed at their lack of faith, and he went around teaching from town to town. So no giving up, no licking of the wounds, no time for reflection and kind of capturing the key learnings. He just gets on with it. In fact, he increases the reach of the ministry by getting the 12 disciples to get on with it in verses 7 to 13. And really they go out as his representatives. Now, I think we're familiar with the idea of representatives. Our politicians serve us as representatives in the House of Representatives. We have representative sports teams all over the northern beaches. Like any kid can be part of a rep team, it seems to me. But I think the disciples are more like sales representatives who represent a business trying to win contracts or sales from customers. And I read a story this week of a couple of sales representatives who pulled up about 45 minutes early to their prospective customer to demonstrate their data technology services. It was a hot summer day, so they went to get a frozen drink at the nearest convenience store. One of them got a large frozen cherry drink. Another one got a large lime-flavored drink. And they took their drinks back to the customer's building and they sat in the visitor's car park going over the sales pitch happily sipping away at their drinks until it was time for the demo. And just as they were about to get out of the car, they looked at each other and realised the mistake. Like one had bright red lips, <laughs> mouth, teeth, gums. And the other one had bright green lips, mouth, teeth and gums. And it wouldn't wash off, so they had no choice but to go into the customer as they were. And apparently everybody laughed on their way into the building because really they looked like they were representing a circus, not a serious data technology firm. And in fact, they were never asked back. Now the question today is, would the disciples fare any better? Would they make a, a better go of being Jesus' representatives? Well, apparently so, if we look at the te text carefully. And you'll notice that Jesus sets them up very well, doesn't he? Verse 7, he divides them into pairs. Always good to have a buddy. But that conforms their mission to kind of the, 
the, uh, the mosaic regulation that everything is established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. They're given the same authority over demons that we've previously seen Jesus have over a demon-possessed man, and we'll come back to him. And Jesus insists that they need to totally depend on God for food and shelter. They would travel light, no bread, no money, not even an extra shirt if it got cold at night, basically relying on God to supply a hospitable host who would in turn supply them with food and lodging. Now at this junction, it's probably worth just pointing out that these instructions are specific to these disciples for this particular mission. But whenever we share the news of Jesus, is it not true that we depend on God, really? And it will be of help to us if we travel light, as it were, not letting our possessions or even our kind of reputation weigh us down too much. Well, how do they go? Let's read verses 12 and 13 together. They went out and preached that people should repent. That is, turn around, turn back to Jesus. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So pretty good, hey? Not too much clowning around amongst the disciples. But embedded within Jesus' instruction is a hint that they would not experience wholesale acceptance. He prepares them for rejection and failure as much as success. I mean, read verse 11 with me. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so it seems that the disciples would share the same problems of prophets that Jesus has just experienced. Not every place and certainly not every person would welcome them nor listen to them. And in that case, they were to shake the dust off their feet. It sounds very dramatic. And apparently Jews who travelled outside, <clears throat> outside of Israel would carefully remove the dust of foreign lands from their shoes and from their clothing to avoid polluting themselves or the promised land itself upon their return. And so these disciples were effectively declaring an unwelcoming village to be like a pagan land. And you might imagine that that kind of dramatic act of shaking the dust off was also designed to provoke the thoughts of the villagers who had just rejected them as much as it was a sign of judgment against them. But even so, what is clear is that these representatives of Jesus would experience what he experienced, some fruit, some life, some belief, but also some rejection, some refusal, some hard-heartedness. They experienced the same problem of prophets that Jesus experienced. And so you'd have to say they represented him really well. Now, if you were in any doubt that rejection is part and parcel of being a prophet, look no further than the life and the beheading death of John the Baptist, which Mark flashes back to here. King Herod, at least that's how Herod viewed himself, he was actually a, a tetrarch, more of a provincial ruler, still a powerful man. He was disturbed by the growing reach of Jesus and his team of representatives. He even wondered uh, whether Jesus might be the resurrected figure of John the Baptist, who was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the one who prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus, as we've just sung. And so Mark recounts the story of a deceitful plot that culminated in the beheading of John the Baptist in gruesome detail. And Andrew pointed out to me earlier this week that I think it says beheading four or five times to make sure we don't miss the point. It's gruesome. 
But a couple of things worth drawing out. Verse 20, Herod knew that John was a righteous and holy man. You see that? See verse 21, he even liked to listen to him. But because John had criticized Herod's unlawful marriage to his brother's wife Herodias, she wanted him dead. And seeing her chance, Herodias grabbed it and ultimately Herod had John beheaded. It is dark, it is darkly intriguing. Herod knows John is holy and he likes listening to him, even though John was prepared to rebuke him. And yet Herod still had him killed because he was afraid of what his friends and his dinner guests might think. You see, it's the problem of prophets all over again, isn't it? Just intensified in John's case. They speak a message from God and they experience rejection. I read a commentator that's a a serious Christian thinker this week who described the story of John's demise as a parenthetical account. You're like parentheses. It's a bit in brackets that you don't really need to know about. What a load of rubbish. This account of John's death is key. It's like a mini passion narrative, isn't it? A shorter version of suffering and death that totally prefigures and anticipates what will happen to Jesus himself. I mean, sure, there's talk of resurrection in this section, but you would have to say the lasting impression that John's head on a platter leaves us with is death. And so John not only prepares us for the ministry of Jesus, he prepares us for the rejection and the death of Jesus as well. (laughs) You should have stayed at home, shouldn't you? No prophet is honoured in his hometown. Shake the dust off your feet. I want his head on a platter. Man, you think we've got a skill shortage in our labour market. (laughs) I can't imagine it was easy finding prophets in Jesus' day. But here's the thing, friends, for those of us who trust in Christ, the problem of prophets is our problem too, just to a smaller degree. Though we're not the same as the disciples and certainly not the same as John the Baptist, we are entrusted with the message of Jesus as his representatives too. Which means that when we speak and respectfully share the message, we must anticipate rejection in some form and to some degree as well. I wonder if you'd be willing to go back to Mark chapter 5 to the story of the demoniac, the demon-possessed man whom Jesus, from whom Jesus exorcised a legion of demons sending them into a herd of pigs which then drowned in the lake. You remember that story? Do you remember the lovely picture of the restored man seated calmly, dressed appropriately, behaving normally? Remember that from a couple of weeks ago? And I know Bruce finished by calling us to pray for the clear presence of evil. There was a startling reminder that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the power of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. Absolutely correct. But it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't tell him to pray. He doesn't even tell him to begin his own ministry of exorcism. And Jesus won't let him join the rest of the disciples after Jesus had been rejected by the people of that town, having had his own kind of shake the dust off your feet kind of moment. Instead, Mark chapter 15 reminds us this. Jesus did not let him, that is, did not let the demon-possessed man, now cleansed, follow him. Instead, he said, go to home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So this man, once tormented, now restored, went away 
and began to tell in the Decapolis, that's the ten towns, how much Jesus had done for him. Now, friends, I am wary of what we call bolt-on applications, the three things that preachers have an annoying, irritating habit of bolting on to every sermon, regardless of the passage, regardless of the topic. You know, we always say, read your Bible more, pray more, share your faith more. Because from Jesus' parables in Mark 4, we've already said, let's read our Bibles more and make sure we're hearing God well. Mark chapter 5, we said, let's pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And now from Mark 6, I'm saying let's share our faith in Jesus. That's our job as his representatives, even if it means rejection. I mean, all three in about as many weeks. <laughs> Sorry about that. But I trust you can see these applications aren't just randomly bolted on. You can see they flow deeply out of the scripture that we're studying. And though today we have focused on the problem facing prophets or anyone bringing the message of God to people, that is the problem of rejection, I also want us to see there's good reason to be hopeful. You would have noticed in the text as Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, they didn't meet only with rejection but also with acceptance and presumably faith and belief. Or you think back to Mark 5, where the townspeople pleaded with Jesus to leave them after he cast out the demons into the herd of pigs. I mean, really, Jesus leaving them is the worst imaginable scenario because as Jesus leaves, so does any hope that's contained in his message, except that Jesus also left the restored demon-possessed man who began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for them, for him. And do you remember how that whole passage ends in Mark chapter 5 with these words, and all the people were amazed. And all the people were amazed. They reject Jesus. Well, he's used to that. But by the end of that passage, they stand amazed. So as well as anticipating rejection, we ought to expect interest, intrigue, and perhaps even belief. Now, maybe that's something that's happening in your spirit this very morning. Well, if I can go back to the restored demon-possessed man for one final time, I think he provides a clue as to how we share the message of Jesus. And Bruce mentioned it super quickly a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's worth expanding upon today. Jesus said to the man, tell your own people how much the Lord has done for you. And if you listen very carefully, Bruce mumbled a one-liner. He said, don't tell people how to live. Tell people what the Lord has done for you. What a great idea. I think it's an excellent guide to sharing the message of Jesus. Tell people how much he has done for you. That might open the opportunity to tell people to repent, which just means to turn to Jesus without it sounding judgmental, without it sounding nasty. Now, I know, friends, we are not treated fairly in the media. We are often depicted as villains uh, unfairly tainted and taunted for what we are against. You know, against gay people, we're against trans people. It's not true. It's not fair. And in our workplaces, it can seem like every minority is protected and celebrated except Christians who are almost censored. You shut up. But in our personal interactions, you see, we can tell people what we are for rather than what we are against. 
And we can share with people the positive difference that Jesus has made in our lives. I mean, people cannot stop us from doing that. We're allowed to talk about ourselves, aren't we? We could say, for example, you know, Jesus has made me more grateful and content. He's made me more patient and humble than I otherwise would be. It's not because I'm great. It's because he's great. He's made me or he's helped me to persevere in my marriage, with my children, with my illness, with my work. Do you know I am less anxious because I know that he is in control? Or you might say, I'm less self-absorbed. It might not look like it, but you should have seen me before. I'm less self-absorbed because I know how much he loves me. I'd have to scurry around trying to find everyone else's approval because he accepts me. I can serve others because he has so served me, whatever it might be for you. You know, when I was a youth minister... We would take school leavers uh, on a mission trip to Vanuatu, which is a wild and beautiful place. And we would do some building work in the jungle there and then we'd sit on the beach for a few days. And I remember one day talking with a local fella by the coast and we looked out to an island just off the coast. And he, he said, that's where my people come from, from that island. And so I asked him if anybody lived on the island anymore. He said, no, they don't. They all moved back to the mainland I said why did they move back he literally said when the missionaries came and brought the gospel the people stopped eating each other it was safe to return now here's the thing missionaries often cop a lot of stick for bringing western problems to the lands they visit but when the missionaries brought the good news of Jesus to that part of Vanuatu the people stopped hunting each other they stopped killing each other and they stopped eating each other and in a way <laughs> in a wild Vanuatu kind of way he was just telling me all that Jesus had done for them well friends we can do the same in our personal interactions with our own people with friends with family members uh, parents if you're watching online you, it's something you ought to be doing with your kids uh, with work colleagues with our teammates don't you think the events of this past week will create some openings in conversation. I mean, war, floods, even the untimely passing of warning. Is it not true that we do that even as we gather together? You know, even while you've been sitting here this morning, people have been walking. You can't see them, I can see them. People have been walking past, going, what are those crazy people doing on such a morning? Communicate something. Even our presence together is a powerful testimony to the people of Manly about what Jesus has done for us. And as we do that, I'm sure we will no doubt find that some people dislike us, perhaps even quickly. That is, after all, the problem that prophets have always faced. But there is also good reason to be optimistic and hopeful, finding hope, interest, intrigue, and maybe even belief. That is the problem of prophets. Friends, Deb is going to lead us in prayer and then we're going to sing our next hymn. Thanks, Deb.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that following your Son means following in his footsteps, sharing his message of hope, of life, of purpose, of forgiveness and salvation. But we also know that at times it will involve personal rejection. It will involve the problem of the prophets, just like your son experienced, even as it inspires interest, intrigue and belief. Forgive us for our fear and embolden us for the task. Provide opportunities for us to share what you have done in our lives with friends, family members, workmates and teammates. Help us to think wisely, sensitively and creatively about how we do that and enable us to live lives that reflect and reinforce what you have done for us rather than detract from it. Sovereign Lord, you observe all those who dwell on earth. Have mercy now on those who are suffering the miseries of war, the miseries of a war that they have not started. Have compassion on the wounded and dying on both sides. Comfort the brokenhearted in their loss. We pray that you would confound the hatred and madness of those who start war. Give wisdom to the rulers and authorities seeking to bring peace. Unite us all under the reign of your Son, who is the Prince of Peace, before whose judgment seat the rulers of this world will give account. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And for the floods, Lord, our oh, Father, please comfort and provide for those who have lost so much, and for those whose lives and possessions are still threatened by ongoing rain. Please bring an end to this disaster. Thank you for the goodwill that's been expressed by so many towards those who suffer. We pray it would continue until communities are fully restored and you give us wisdom about the place that we should take in that restoration. And for those who grieve, Father, we thank you that you are close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. We know that there are many among us in that situation, brokenhearted at the loss of loved ones, either recently or long ago, or crushed in spirit in their circumstances. May we be people who grieve with those who grieve and care for one another in times of difficulty. And we pray especially today for the family of Valerie Wood and especially for John. Thank you so much, Lord, that Val's suffering is over and that she is at peace with you. And as the God of all comfort, comfort John and his family and Val's friends in their grief. And we take a moment now to bring those who are close to us who are grieving or crushed in spirit. How absolutely wonderful, our dearest Father, that we can cast all our cares on you because you love us. And so we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our next hymn is an absolutely great one to follow our prayers, especially verse 2, which I won't read out to you because you'll sing it and you'll think, as you sing it, you'll think, yes, that's right. 
Let's stand as the musicians come up and um, prepare to have communion together.
Thank you, Deborah. Our friends, we're about to share together in the Lord's Supper. Today I thought we might just draw some of the meaning that we can find in the Lord's Supper from the unjust and gruesome death of John the Baptist. Uh, because in so many ways it, it foreshadows the death of Jesus in all of its horror and all of its unjustness. Uh, an outside observer may wonder why believers focus so much on the death of Jesus, uh, so awful that uh, well-living people in the Roman Empire would not even mention it in polite discussion, the crucifixion. Uh, for the disciples, as the, the death of Jesus came close, they were deeply troubled and moved in spirit. And so Jesus, as he shared the Last Supper with them, explained what it was all about uh, using elements of the meal that they were eating. So here's how, here's how the scriptures describe it. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we consider the horror of what Jesus faced, uh, we recognise it was to carry the weight of our sins in his body on the tree. And so it's very right that as we prepare to eat a little bit of bread and drink from the cup, it's very proper that we confess our sins to Almighty God, even as we do it trusting in God's mercy and grace shown to us in Christ. So I'll give you a moment to prepare and then we'll say this, this prayer of confession together. Merciful Father, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the schemes and desires of our own hearts and have broken your holy laws. We have left undone what we ought to have done and we have done what we ought not to have done. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. Restore those who repent according to the promises declared to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant, merciful Father, for his sake, that from now on we may live godly and obedient lives to the glory of your holy name. Amen. We read this from the beginning of Romans chapter 8. Therefore there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus you've been set free from the law of sin and death. So brothers and sisters, let's take this bread and as we eat, let's remember the body of Christ which was given for us and be thankful.
And shall we also take these cups and from them drink, remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. Together, let's say this prayer of thanksgiving and dedication. Lord and Heavenly Father, in your loving kindness, accept our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Grant that by the merits and death of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and your whole church may receive forgiveness of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. With gratitude for all your mercies, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. Amen. What a wonderful way to finish our time together. I'm just going to remind you of the words that Scott said. Don't tell people what to do. Tell people what he has done for you, even though it might be costly, even though you might end up with the profits problem, because on the other hand, many people may be amazed and accept and have faith and believe. I started with Psalm 105, verses 1 to 3, and I'm going to finish with verse 4. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Let's stand and pray for each other in this benediction before we go to morning tea. Don't forget to come and eat homemade muffins for Charles' birthday. Let's stand. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep our hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son. Oh, a much shorter one than I have. Sorry. Let's say this one together. And then, actually, that's a great interruption because I completely forgot to say goodbye to you on YouTube and God bless you. And it's been lovely to have you with us because I know many of you would have joined us if it hadn't been for the weather. So thanks for being here today and God bless you. So really, that's a much better way to end. Thank you for that. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, Fill our hearts and minds with all joy and peace in believing. Amen. God bless you.